0: To now showing the study of Revelation. If you weren't able to be with us last week, we, uh, I want to encourage you to go online to the church website and, and listen to the sermon, because uh, last week we laid down some, some pretty important ground rules as it comes to our study of the book of Revelation, and I especially want to emphasize the ground rule where I don't wind up getting shot. Now, that's a rule to live by, literally, for me. But uh, I believe that Revelation is written to help us be better disciples of Jesus Christ. And Revelation is a guidebook for discipleship from which we can learn how to remain faithful to God in in the midst of living in a hostile culture. And Revelation is an instruction manual on how to have peace in a world falling to pieces. I'm convinced we desperately need the message Of the book of Revelation today. But. If you don't capture. That image. That huge powerful image of Jesus. From Revelation chapter 1. Then you'll miss the message. Of this book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. The main character is Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. He is the main character. And the message of chapter 1 is. Don't. Close your eyes. And one of the reasons I'm convinced it's important to study Revelation is because it helps us approach Jesus more reverently. And that's important. Maybe you've been like me and you're one of those Buicks I talked about last week, those brought up in church kids that you get so familiar with Jesus. You've seen all the pictures of Jesus. You've seen the flannel graphs of Jesus. And and we, we see him in the robe and the blue sash and the soft flowing brown hair and a lamb on his shoulder and kids all around him. And we see this gentle Jesus, the nice Jesus. We see the Mr. Rogers Jesus, if you will. And yes, Jesus was loving, and yes, Jesus was kind, but the danger is we can, it's almost like we can put Jesus in a theological dryer and shrink him. And he just becomes our buddy. And maybe that's why we don't take holiness more seriously, and maybe that's why we, we, we don't live for him or honor him as we should at times in our life, because when you declaw the lion of Judah, you turn him into just a nice household pet. And he's not going to stop you from living the way you want. And so we lose our reverence. We lose our our fear. But the message of Revelation chapter 1 is don't close your eyes to Jesus. But let's move on this morning. We'll be in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And let me introduce you to a big word this morning. It's the word hermeneutics. Say that word with me. Hermeneutics. Try it one more time hermeneutics, all right, that's, that's a, you know, maybe you'll see it on Jeopardy! someday, I don't know. But hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. And one of the important rules of interpretation is that if the Bible does not speak to every generation and every time and place, then it is irrelevant. And if it's irrelevant, then it can't be God's Word. And this is huge as we approach the book of Revelation. Because John wrote this letter to a specific audience And yet while the book spoke to them, to these people in these seven churches, it still speaks to us today. And that's why I don't view this book of Revelation as a a calendar per se. I view it more of as a, a template that you can apply to any time and any generation in history. Because Revelation helps us to be better disciples no matter what time, no matter what culture we are living in. And so that's why as we study Revelation, we're desperately searching for the aim. You know, whenever we study any book of the Bible, we want to find the aim of that book, whether it's Ruth or or Ephesians, but especially when it comes to Revelation, we want to see the aim. And when I mention aim, I'm referring to the author's intended meaning. The author's intended meaning. Because every author in the Bible has a specific message and a specific audience they were writing to. So if we can understand who John was writing to and the time and the culture in which they lived, we're better going to grasp the the aim of Revelation. Now, the historical context for Revelation is critical in understanding the aim. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you, you live in Chicago in 1999, and you read... In the Chicago Tribune, this paragraph. Now, you with me? Chicago, 1999, sports page of the Chicago Tribune. Imagine you read this paragraph. The bull, which once ruled the earth for 72 months, has suffered a mighty fall. For at the end of the 72 months, the great right horn of the bull, whose number is 20 and 3, let the reader understand, departed. And so did the great left horn of the bull. And then the third horn of the bull, which was pierced in many places and dressed like a woman, <laughs> likewise departed. And the beasts of the earth, the hornets, the timber wolves, they came and devoured the flesh of the bull. And the glory of the mighty bull was laid low. Now, if you lived in Chicago in 1999, you understood what that paragraph was talking about. But someone who lived in another place another time who didn't even know what basketball was, they would be totally confused by that paragraph we just read. And the point is we need to remember, we've got to be careful not to rip these images, not to rip these metaphors out of context. Because when John was writing the book of Revelation, these things, they, they meant something to the readers. They understood what John was was implying. And, and understanding the historical context is critical in understanding the Apostle John's aim with the book of Revelation. And so the historical context is, is that the audience of Revelation was living in a time when the culture was just hostile toward Christianity. That John wrote to seven churches throughout the Roman province of Asia. And these disciples, they were facing intense persecution from the Roman government. And after seeing this amazing picture of Jesus in chapter 1, we get into Revelation and we find that it's a message delivered straight from Jesus to these seven churches. And this just gives us the historical context for the book of Revelation, that Jesus, he communicates to them through John. And the first church that Jesus communicates to is a church in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was a city on the west coast of Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. Ephesus had a population of around 250,000 people. And the city of Ephesus was famous for its Temple of Diana. And this Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world. So right in the middle of town, right in the middle of Ephesus, there was this massive temple to, to the goddess Diana. And all throughout the town of Ephesus, plastered everywhere was, was the, the, the image or symbol of Diana, which was a palm leaf. Even on the coins, they would have this palm leaf. You see, outside of the city of Ephesus, outside of town, there was a grove of, of palm trees. And the people believed that under a particular palm tree, that was where Diana had been born. And it came to be known as the tree of life. And every year in Ephesus, they would have a festival to celebrate Diana. And they would refer to this grove of palm trees as paradise. Now, isn't that interesting knowing that context? Because we see as Jesus addresses the church in Ephesus, he looks at it and he says, I see your hard work. I see your deeds. I see the persecution you're facing. I mean, Jesus knows what's going on in his church. He also knows they've got room to grow. And he encourages them and tells them that, look, like, you need to get back to your first love. You need to do this, and, and you need to, to, to follow me. Stay faithful to me. And look at what Jesus says will happen if they repent, if they stay faithful. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. It's like Jesus is saying, if you think that grove of palm trees over there is paradise, if you think that's the tree of life, just wait until you see the real thing. Just wait until you see the tree of life in God's heaven. Oh, stay faithful. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Now, church number two addressed in the book of Revelation was a church in the city of Smyrna. And Smyrna was a small town that was built on a hill. And the buildings at the top of this hill, they were called the crown. Smyrna was known as the as place that the, the buildings on the hill were known as the crown. And another fact important about Smyrna is that the city had been attacked and just leveled by Alexander the Great. And he rebuilt it. But then later on an earthquake came and just leveled the city. And so historians said that the city of Smyrna had died twice. It had been destroyed twice. The city had died twice. And Jesus, when he addresses the church in Smyrna, he says, if you will be faithful, even to the point of death, I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2.10, be faithful, even to the point of death, I will give you the crown of life. And then in verse 11, Jesus goes on to say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And so this group of Christians who were trying to survive in a city known as the crown, Jesus says, if you're faithful, oh, you're going to get the crown of life. And to a group of Christians trying to survive in a city known for being destroyed twice, Jesus says, you who overcome are not going to be hurt by the second death. And you see, our first death happens when we die to self. And we are buried with Christ in the waters of baptism. And then we rise to begin a new life. Romans chapter 6 teaches us this. And after experiencing this death, we don't have to fear the second death, the eternal death. The Apostle Paul would express it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? We don't have to. If we are faithful to the end, there's a crown of life. The second death can't touch you. Jesus moves on and talks to the third church uh, located in the city of Pergamum. And, And the governor of Pergamum had what was called the right of the sword. Meaning the governor of Pergamum could decide who lived or who died. He had the right of the sword. He had the power to execute people. And remember, Caesar, the Roman emperor, he claimed to be God. And the way people would greet each other in that culture, they would have to say, you know, Caesar is Lord. Well, for Christians... For disciples of Jesus, this is a problem because Jesus is the Lord. And so in this time of persecution, if someone didn't answer with Caesar is Lord, this governor in Pergamum had the right of the sword and could persecute and even execute Christians. And we see in, in, in there in Revelation chapter 2, a Christian named Antipas was put to death for his faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus reminds his church in Pergamum. Listen, the words you're receiving, they are coming from the one who, as verse 12 tells us, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. That governor thinks he has authority? (laughs) This message is coming from the one who is the authority, who has the sword, who has the power. Jesus is absolute. He is power. And he reminds his church, I see the persecution you're going through. I've seen Antipas give his life for his faith. Hey, remain faithful. I've got the sword. And then Jesus moves on to the next church in the city of Thyatira. In this city of Thyatira, it was like the ancient version of Las Vegas. Thyatira was known for their sexual immorality. I mean, they believed, their philosophy of belief was, if it feels good, do it. And to this philosophy, to this lifestyle, Jesus tells the church, no, no. In verse 20, we read Jesus saying to the church, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. And I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. And so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. And you see, to Jesus, it didn't matter what the culture was saying. It didn't matter that the culture said, if it feels good, do it. It didn't matter if, if the culture was saying, hey, what happens in Thyatira stays in Thyatira. It didn't matter. Jesus saying, if you want to follow me, you live a life that honors me. You live a life that is pure. You live a life that is, is holy. There's still time to repent. There's still time to turn back. But if not, there's intense consequences. But Jesus says, I want my church to be pure. I want my church to be be holy like I am holy. So get out of bed with the false teacher and come back to me, Jesus says to the church. And he moves on from Thyatira and he moves to the next city, which is Sardis. And he message to the church in Sardis was kind of funny at times. (laughs) Because for the history of Sardis, not once but twice, their army had fallen asleep on watch and they had been defeated. Two times this has happened in their history, that they had fallen asleep and were attacked and defeated. They had been overconfident. And so playing off this, Jesus says to the church in chapter 3, verse 2, He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. It's like Jesus is saying, yes, we're in a spiritual battle, people. We are in a, a battle. Don't get caught sleeping. Wake up. And I think it's funny because I think there's some sarcasm in this, knowing what we know about the the historical context of Sardis. But Jesus says, wake up. Have you ever been in a church where you just prayed, oh, please let something exciting happen here today. Please let something happen that's not written out on the bulletin. Have you been in a church where they're singing Blessed Assurance like it's a funeral dirge? Blessed Assurance. Wake up, church. (laughs) That's the message Jesus gives to this church. Wake up. We are in a battle. We, We are at war. Don't fall asleep on the watch. And the seventh church that Jesus gives a message to was located in the town of Laodicea. And Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was so wealthy that when an earthquake struck, the Roman government was sending funds to help rebuild. And they were so wealthy in Laodicea, they said, no thanks, we're good, we got this. That would be like the people of New Orleans telling the government after Katrina, hey, we got this, we're good, we don't need your money. That's how wealthy the city was in Laodicea. That's how rich they were. Laodicea was known for three things. They were known for their fashion They had flocks of of goats or sheep that they raised outside of Laodicea that had this special black wool. And and so the fashion industry was just very prevalent in Laodicea. And everyone was well-dressed in this town. Another fact about Laodicea, they were known for their medicine. There had been a couple doctors in Laodicea who had developed this this ointment for for eyes. And it would cure most eye ailments of that day and time. They were also known for their water. Because they had this aqueduct. They had an aqueduct built from a, a source a few miles away that was hot springs that would bring warm water into town. And they also had another aqueduct coming from another location that was bringing cold water into town. But what happened is the water would travel over the course of this aqueduct. You know, the, the warm water would start to cool it would become lukewarm. And, and then over the passing of time, the water just it began to smell. It was nauseating. And isn't it interesting that knowing this context, that Jesus, his message to the church in Laodicea is, you're naked, you're blind, and you're lukewarm and nauseating, and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That was Jesus' message to the church. And we think, wow, that sounds harsh. But we've got to remember, friends, God disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. You see, the ultimate punishment from God is to actually leave you alone. The ultimate punishment God could give is to leave you alone. The hell of hells is that you've, you know, the hell of hell is you've finally found a place where God is not. I mean, you think it... This world, And you think, man, this world is so bad. And things are so discouraging. And it's awful at times in this world. Just imagine if you remove God. Just imagine if you remove God's people from the mix. How horrible, how hopeless this place would be. And you see, there's coming a day when some people are going to get their wish. And God is going to leave them alone. The only problem is it's going to be in hell. Because hell is, you finally found a place where God is not. But until that day. God, He disciplines those He loves. He lovingly tries to correct. He, he calls to repentance people he, he loves. And God is going to give everyone a chance to live for Him. And you know what really matters to God? What really matters to God is love. Love is what really matters to God. And we can spend a lot of time focusing on facts I mean, we can get into this Bible study and and we can look at pictures and archaeological digs and we can look at a lot of facts about these seven churches in the book of Revelation. But facts, they don't always result in faith. But if we have faith, faith results in action. And information is no substitute for transformation. And so we've got to ask as we look at these two chapters here in Revelation, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We've got to ask, what are the lessons we can learn from these churches who have gone before us? What is the practical application that we can see? Because when we looked at chapter 1 last week, the message was, don't close your eyes. And this week as we look at the message to the churches, we see Jesus seven times. He uses this phrase. Seven times Jesus says, He who has, an ear, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, if the message of chapter one is don't close your eyes, the message of chapters two and three is keep your ears open. Keep your ears open. Don't close your eyes. Keep your ears open. Because, friends, we've got to learn to listen to God. But how do we do that? Well, I believe we primarily listen to God by getting into his word. Romans chapter 10, 17 teaches us that faith comes by hearing the word of God. And so the more we listen to his word, the more we get into his word, the more faith we're going to have, and faith will lead to action. And we've got to ask ourselves, am I listening to God in my life? Am I growing in my faith? Is my faith leading me to take action? You know, as we've gone through this list of churches, there was actually one church I skipped over and did not mention. It's actually the only church that Jesus had nothing negative to say about. Jesus simply encourages them and tells them, stay faithful. I see your deeds. And notice what Jesus says in verse 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. And he says this to the church that's in the city of Philadelphia. Not Pennsylvania, but over there in the province of Asia, Philadelphia. And Philadelphia had been named by a Roman emperor for his younger brother. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. When you break down the word Philadelphia, uh, Phileo is a family love and Adelphia was was a a brother. And so it's the city of brotherly love. And Jesus looks at this church in the city of Philadelphia and he says, I see your deeds. I see the way that you're loving others around you. And he encourages them. He commends this church in Philadelphia. And I ask the question, I wonder, what if we became known as Philadelphia? What if we were like the church of Philadelphia? What if we were known as people who loved others? You know, we serve an awesome God. And Jesus, He is holy. He is, he is true. He opens what no one can shut. He, he shuts what no one can open. And, and we've seen that in the life of our church already. Our church is not even a year old. And we've seen this verse. We've seen Jesus open things. We've seen Jesus close things. He does what is right. He does what is true. When we were first making plans to plant this church, Restoration Christian Church, We were meeting Sunday nights at the home of Matt and Tina Pierce, just a small group Bible study. And we were making plans for starting Sunday morning worship services. And at the very beginning, my initial hope was that we would have worship services in this theater. And yet, because of some circumstances, when we approached the theater and asked to have permission to meet here, just because of some other circumstances, we were told, no, it was a shut door. And so we continued to seek and and search for a place for us to worship. And we had heard that the elementary school was not going to be an option for churches. Because another church had asked about meeting in the elementary school. And yet one night after Bible study there at Matantinas, After we had prayed about finding a place to worship. The elementary school was brought up. And we explained how well we don't think it's going to be an option. And yet. The decision is made, let's go ahead and ask. And you know what? God opened a door. And the elementary school was a great place for our church to begin holding worship services. It was a great place until this spring, at the end of May and beginning of June, Jesus opened another door. And here we sit in this amazing air conditioning for the summer. Wasn't that a blessing? I mean, can you imagine? (laughs) I'd have had to preach on hell every week. But Jesus is one who opens and shuts. And we think, are we listening to God? Am I listening? What is God calling me to do? And wouldn't it be awesome if we were known as Philadelphia? If when people saw church, they'd say, that's Philadelphia. Wouldn't it be great if we were known as people who just give generously, who give sacrificially, who care for the needs of others? And I pray and trust that we will be a generous church. I mean, that's one of our our core values that we give. Just as the early church in the book of Acts, we see them being generous. We want to be a generous church as well. And I'm thankful that we have been generous in in, in the, the early stages of our church. Our first expenditure as a church, as a small group, was to give something away. Back in 2011 when the tornado had hit Celestine, Alicia Tomlinson had a co-worker whose home had been hit by the tornado. And our small group took up some money and was able to give that to them so they could buy some supplies. Our first expense as a church wasn't to buy something for us, it was to give something away because we want to be generous. We've been blessed to be a blessing. And that's something we want to keep on instilling. We want to give. And we don't want to do these things to be to be noticed. There is a difficult balance that comes when we talk about these things and, and talk about being generous because we don't want the focus to be on us. You know, I'm very proud that, that last Christmas our church gave over $1,300 so we could buy presents for people in our community who, who aren't as fortunate. And we can be proud of that, but we've got to make sure we don't put the focus on ourselves. The focus has to be on God and what God is doing. And we have to ask ourselves, are our ears open? Are our eyes open? Are our ears open? Are we listening to God? What is God calling us to do? Here's something I've been thinking about. Something I'd like for us just to try. Because from time to time, we do get requests. There's been a few times we've helped people out with some gas money. There's been a few times we've helped people out just needing a place to stay. And I had this idea, what if... We would just set up a bucket, maybe on this table or out here in the lobby. And what if every one of us, every week, just dropped a dollar in that bucket? I mean, nothing more. I mean, just just if you had an extra dollar, just, just dropping it in that bucket. And from that bucket, those funds, if you know of someone who needs help, we'll use those funds to help them. I mean, on a, I mean, that's, it could be anywhere based on our average attendance, anywhere from fifty to hundred dollars a week that we would have in that bucket if everyone just brought a dollar in. And so next week, I want to just put a bucket out there, and we're just going to call it our help bucket. And it's not for us, it's for people who don't go to this church, who probably never will go to this church. Just as a way to say, hey, if you know someone in need, let us know. We want to help. We want to be Phil Philadelphia. And we wonder, what a difference that can make in their life. What a difference that can make in our life. I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if we were just known as Philadelphia? That if Jesus looked at the church, he says, I know your deeds. You're Philadelphia. City of love. What a difference it can make in our lives. What a difference it can make in the lives of others. What a difference it can make in the lives of our children. Oh, wouldn't it be awesome if our children grew up? And never heard anything negative about the church. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful? <sighs> if our kids could grow up and not hear a negative thing about the church. If, if our kids could grow up and, and, and never hear someone say, Well, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. And I pray and hope that the church would be known as Philadelphia. A place of love. But that only happens if our ears are open. Are we listening to what God... The same, And I'll always love the church because I always love the founder of the church. I'll always love the church because I always love Jesus. But I have to ask, are my ears open? And you know, some people can obsess over Revelation. Others can neglect the book of Revelation. But I love to study Revelation because when I do, I love the church more and more. I love God's idea called the church. I mean, when we read the books of Ephesians and Acts, we catch this vision for a vibrant, you know, life-filled, victorious community. I mean, it's a band of believers who are just, you know, set on fire with love for God, who, who are just like a mission post, you know, charging hell with water guns. I mean, just excited to be a part of, of the church. It's just an outpost of God's kingdom here on this earth. And we read these stories in the New Testament about the church, and we're like, sign me up for that. And then we go to church. <laughs> and we're like, what? There's like a disconnect here. We go to church and we find people who can care more about the color of the carpet than compassion. Or they hold on to their possessions too tightly. Or they, they argue and, and fight. And, uh, the church. You know, the church can be a lot like Noah's Ark. If it wasn't for the storm going on outside, you couldn't stand the smell inside. But if you don't study Revelation, you won't realize that all churches fall short of the glory of God. And that's nowhere clearer than in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. That these churches, they're marked by immorality. They're marked by sloppy teaching. They're marked by apathy. they're, They're marked by complacency. I mean, these churches, they're just a mess. They're a mess. Because they're made up of people who are a mess. If you ever find the perfect church, don't tell me because I couldn't go. I'd mess it up. And we see these churches in Revelation. And we see they're messed up. But the good news is, Jesus still loves these churches. I mean, it's tough love to be sure. That in these seven letters, Jesus challenges, He corrects, He confronts. He's trying to move them to maturity. But this is love nonetheless. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And it's confrontation followed by commendation. And you get the sense that Jesus loves these churches because they're his. Because they're his. For better or for worse, they are his bride. And he he treats her with a firm and tender love. Jesus doesn't give up on his church. Why? Why? Because he gave his life for her. You know, each week here at Restoration, we take time to remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And as you came in, you received one of these communion cups with the emblems for communion. And we invite all believers to participate in communion at this time. But from studying Revelation, we remember no one's perfect That's why Jesus came to the earth. No one's perfect. That's why Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And he purchased us by his blood. And therefore, we want to live for him. And it starts by keeping your eyes open. It continues by keeping your ears open so as we go into this time of communion, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus as that perfect sacrifice. Because, God, we are not perfect. But, Father, we thank you that because of his sacrifice, we have hope. And we have forgiveness. And so here in this time, Father, we ask you to speak. For your servants are listening.